Bad news. Bad news for the state. Bad news for capital. Bad news for patriarchy. Bad news for all forms of domination. Bad news. Angry voices from around the world. Our monthly info show from anarchist and anti-authoritarian radio projects worldwide. If these news are bad, I don't want to be good. Welcome to the 43rd edition of Bad News, Angry Voices from Around the World, a commonly produced monthly show of the anarchist and anti-authoritarian radio network. In this episode of March 2021, we will start with a contribution from A-Radio Berlin with an interview with the anarchist food help of Bochum and Dortmund. The group started organizing the distribution of food on the basis of collected donations, but hopes to expand the project beyond this. They talked with them on how they organize, what issues they face, and what they recommend to people interested in starting similar projects. Did you hear this one yet? The pandemic affects everyone equally. Well, no. It is obvious that this statement has nothing to do with the reality of capitalism. Rather, the impoverishment and redistribution from the bottom to the top is steadily progressing, also in this current crisis. In Bochum and Dortmund in Germany, since November 2020, an anarchist food help is now organizing itself with direct action against us. We as the Anarchist Radio Berlin have talked with them in mid-February 2021. And for this month's bad news, we share this talk with you. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. To start off, would you like to briefly introduce yourselves, tell us what you do and for how long you have been doing it? First of all, thank you very much for letting us be here at all. We are a small group actually. We are by and large the Anarchist Food Aid in Bochum and Dortmund. We formed around November 2020, distribute food in the beginning. That's more or less our whole operation as well. We distribute food that we bought with donations. About once a month, once in Dortmund and once in Bochum. And up to now, we are planning, for example, to also have a distribution point, so that we don't have to distribute the food every time, but instead also bring food to a certain place, and the people who need it can pick it up there. Yes, that's basically our work currently. Exactly. It's actually divided in two parts. One is to advertise the project, to collect donations, and on the other hand, to distribute the things and to buy them. I think it's in the name, but maybe you can talk a bit about how you organize as a group and how many people you are and how one can imagine what you do. There are four of us right now. We hope to grow a bit more. There's another interested person at the moment. Of course, it's more difficult in Corona times to involve new people. Also, our perspective is that we, as the name also says, do not necessarily want to be a kind of a social replacement service or social welfare replacement. We also want to spread anarchist ideas and also we want to get involved in organizing food supplies ourselves. 
There are ideas that we might at some point network with neighborhood gardens or support collective farms. You just mentioned that you've been working on this since November. Back then in Germany, there wasn't a real lockdown in the same sense of what's going on right now. So what was it like before the lockdown? What was it like during the lockdown? And do you have any plans for the case that restrictions get lifted now? Actually, not too much has changed for us. Because for the first deliveries, there was no real lockdown. The basic structure has always been that we distribute stuff. The only main problem that we have right now is that we can't set up a distribution point because all the self-organized places are closed. We're actually planning to set up a distribution point in the Black Pigeon in Dortmund, in the anarchist center. We can't do that right now because it's completely closed. That will change as soon as at least bookstores can open again, in the sense that then there will be walk-in customers there. That way we could then set up a distribution point through the food sharing network. And the other point where things are more difficult for us in, lo in the lockdown is that we would actually like to make public meetings in order to involve more people. Also people who are sitting on the street who don't want to come to a meeting place or write an email because it's just not possible. So they can also better participate in the project. This is now an exclusion that is created by the lockdown. I see. When I think of myself buying stuff in the supermarket, there's this theoretical risk of contamination by the virus. Do you have any kind of concept of how to deal with that issue? Of how to handle food as safely as possible? Maybe first of all, I think when it comes to Corona, we need to consider contact transmission. We have informed ourselves beforehand and there's not that much risk there, but we still have things that we do. For example, we only buy packaged food. We make sure we don't directly touch the food, just the packaging. We always try to wash and disinfect our hands before distributing and before packing the food. Almost always wear a mask, in fact all the time when packing, when distributing, everywhere, just to make sure that the risk is as low as possible. Exactly. And for things we do touch, we always wash or disinfect our hands before for things like bananas or apples. And how many people do you reach with the food distribution currently? And was there any kind of feedback that goes beyond a thanks for the food? At the moment we distribute food to about 20 people in Bochum and another 20 people in Dortmund. Of course this can be expanded if we have the appropriate resources. So this is primarily a question of money. In the future, when more people participate in the project, the point is that we want to set up distribution points rather than distribute everything on the street. Because then transport becomes quite difficult at some point. There has actually been relatively little feedback so far from people who are affected themselves. I remember that one person said that when she feels better she would like to participate in the project. And other feedback comes from people outside the project, relatively strongly, who are very happy that there is something like that. Are there currently any problems or repression or anything like that? I'm asking since in Germany the state always likes to regulate everything when it comes to food. So is there anything currently going on? Or are you so much under the radar that nothing has occurred? I can say that we have also informed ourselves about the legal side beforehand, 
there are, at least legally, not so many uh, repression possibilities, because distributed packaged food that was purchased directly is not a problem legally, at least in our federal state. And we don't have anything refrigerated. But if we were to do something refrigerated, we would do it through a food sharing network refrigerator. Otherwise, there have been no problems so far. But we are not directly traceable now either. We also make sure to take care that it is not so easy to find out who is behind the project. And how can people currently support you, financially or otherwise? Clearly financially, of course. We finance ourselves through donations. So, of course, it depends on the donations how much we can distribute. But a big point is also that we need people who participate. As I said, we are four people. If we want to have larger deliveries, larger quantities, then of course we need more people to lend a hand. That's definitely a big help. What would also help in any case is to spread awareness that this project exists, that we get attention, that people can find us and support us as much as they can. I think it's also important that we become a bit more known in the left bourgeois spectrum, because we don't just want donations from the anarchist movement. It would be good if the project were financed more broadly. Because we don't have so much money ourselves and there are so many other important projects. And with Corona, money is also short in many projects. I would like to add that theoretically, we do not only accept money, but also donated food, provided that it has not expired. For example, food and vegetables. We would prefer that in the long run, because we are not the biggest fan of buying the food in the supermarket, so companies profit from it sowas in einem Supermarkt einzukaufen, wo dann wieder Unternehmen von profitieren. On that note, do you want to mention where exactly people can find you on the internet and how it works with the donations? An für sich hätten wir zum Beispiel unseren Blog bei For example, on our blog at alhbo.blackblocks.org there is a section donate with the info on how to transfer money to an account. This account is from a friendly association which then basically buys the things for us or finances that. And if you want to participate, you can write us an email at lhabo at riseup.net. Alright, for people who might not be in your area, but who now feel inspired to start a similar project, do you have any tips on how to get started? Maybe from your own experience, what has worked well? Well, first I would say just start, because there's way too little from that right now. Even though we are in a situation where many people are impoverished, this is not going to get better in the next few years, with climate change and the other crises that are coming. We will be more and more dependent on self-organization. And as I said, we don't just want to distribute food, but in principle we also want to support self-organized production and community-based organization. But if you start with that, I would say in any case, you should inform yourself beforehand what it makes sense, what are the concrete needs of the community you want to support. For example, don't distribute food that needs to be refrigerated to people on the street, because they don't have a refrigerator or anything that needs to be cooked. That you just think, okay, what makes sense at all, what are the needs of people, and then take appropriate actions. Okay. So maybe to conclude, is there anything else you would like to add? Anything that wasn't covered by the questions? 
Well, I personally think it's important to have a perspective again, to see that we need such things in the long term, and that this shouldn't be a kind of a social welfare work, but it should be mutual aid as much as possible. Because even with us, it's still like that. At the moment, it's still very top-down, because we don't have so many people who organize it, who are affected themselves. We are not the richest people ourselves, and we might be dependent on it ourselves at some point. So that's a bit of a future plan for ourselves at least. But still, to try to make sure, to maybe include as many people as possible, and make sure that it becomes a mutual aid project and not a replacement of social welfare. I would maybe add that our way to help people is not the only way. There are certainly a lot of other ways that are maybe more difficult right now with the lockdown, but as soon as, hopefully soon, things get more open again, it's also safe again to start, support or even participate in projects like this, please do so. We're not the only ones and these things can really help people. And that's definitely a good foundation for a better life. And also remember to network with other projects, to support them. That is important. Because many projects are isolated and don't look further than their own horizon. We only do this on a small scale now. But for example, we always have a flyer with us, where we distribute information about other projects in the city that can be of help and even try to do a little advertising. Great, then many, many thanks for the interview and much solidarity and strength for the creation of more food help projects. Thank you very much from us back and good luck on the radio. You listen to the 43rd edition of Bad News, Angry Voices from Around the World. We will continue with the final straw radio, which is sharing a portion of a conversation with the Ethiopia anarchist member of the Horn Anarchists about the conflict in Tigray. This is the final straw radio from so-called Asheville in southern Appalachia, Turtle Island. We got to speak with a member of Horn Anarchists about the conflict in Tigray, Ethiopia. A longer version of this chat is at our website, thefinalstrawradio.noblogs.org, where you can find links to news sources on the conflict and a transcript in English coming soon. Horn Anarchists are active on Twitter. I go by the name Anner, and Horn Anarchists, as a collective project, started about a year ago with the aim of disseminating anarchist ideas and values in the politics of the Horn. Individually, we were engaged in different anti-fascist, feminist, labor, and refugee solidarity organizing and we later came together to bring the values of anarchism and and some of our works into a shared collective organizing most of what we've been doing in the past year has been online since um, some of our members are in the diaspora some of us are based in the horn of africa and we haven't actually been able to come together as of yet and work into grassroots projects as of yet, but we have hopes of doing that. The federal state used the massacre of my Qadra to justify the war against the Great. The first was the attack on the Northern Command of the ENDF. Uh, we still don't know who the perpetrator was. There are different claims. Some claim it was TPLF allied forces. Others claim it was the ENDF. 
um, other claims it was the uh, Amhara militia or the Fano vigilante group. Regardless, there hasn't been an investigation that every group agreed on, whether it was the Amharas that were killed or whether it was the Tigrayans. We know for sure that there has been retaliation and any other aspect of the war, the, including their retaliation, the different massacres. We've heard about massacres in Aksum, Madam Denglats. We've heard of massacres in quite a few number of places, the biggest so far being in Aksum, in where 800 people were killed inside of a church. And none of these were reported by the state as was Maikadra. It has been almost for a month, but the Maikadra is still occupies the news, still occupies airtime, and not the others. So the way it, it was used as a tool for propaganda makes one doubt the genuinity behind the reports. So I don't know. I, I wouldn't see it as a breakdown of the multi-ethnic federalism. I mean, there are signs of the breakdown, but not this war. I just, I just see it as years-long hate preaching and fascism, to be honest. One of the reasons the Amhara militia and the Fano vigilante group went to war was because they had claims over some of the lands that were occupied by Tigrayans. And that, that is mostly in the western part of Tigray, which we still expect were the worst hit they were the worst affected. There was an ethnic cleansing almost. Nowadays, one barely finds any Tigrayan living in that that region that was occupied by Tigrayans. The Amharas have taken over, and this was one of their causes to get into war. So I would uh, attribute it to fascism than I would to the breakdown of the multi-ethnic federalism. If anything, this is a collective punishment on any and every ethnic Tigrayan that not only lives in Tigray, but also lives outside Tigray. They've been ethnically profiled, they've been arrested, detained, they had their house searched without warrants, and they were harassed, tortured, abused on the streets by people as well as by security forces. And this collective punishment actually dates back. I would say it goes back to 2016 when ethnic Tigrayans were forced to flee their homes, the place they've been living in for for years, for decades. And they were forced to flee and go back to Tigray. And since then, roads were blocked, inflation was really high. Ethnic Tigrayans were facing repression. Not only were they illegally detained, illegally searched, even arrested. They were also harassed and tortured on the streets. If they had a Tigrinya-sounding name, or if their ID said that they were from the Tigrayan ethnic origin, they were also unable to board international flights as Ethiopian Airlines was asking people to provide their local IDs to, to make sure what ethnic group they were from to bar them from flying. So there were also many ethnic Tigrayans were getting laid off. They were being suspended from work, especially those that had government jobs. Every member of the military that is 
ethnic Tigrayan has been suspended. Also, members of the federal government and the organizations functioning under the federal government that were working in different parts of the country were also suspended from work. Many landlords were also evicting people only because they were ethnic Tigrayans. We've recently been seeing that there was a footage that was circulating on social media of civilians being killed by the Ethiopian National Defense Force, being massacred in a very, very gruesome manner. Content warning, there is a graphic description of sexual assault coming up. If you're concerned, please skip ahead a minute or turn down the radio for that length of time. One of the biggest concerns is also rape. There's widespread rape in the cities that that are controlled by ANDF. Both the ANDF and the Eritrean soldiers are engaged in gang rapes of young girls, very young girls. At first it was teenagers, and then the reports coming now are of children less than the age of 13. And the reason behind what, what is being said is that the Eritrean soldiers were warned against HIV, so the assumption was that young girls would be free from HIV and they were safe options. There are different ways in which the international community can show solidarity with the people of Tigray, and the most basic one is tweeting, using the hashtags, making sure that word gets out, making sure the communication and media blackouts does not mean the world does not know what is happening. We need to be as loud as possible to make sure that people are aware of what is happening. I personally believe that Tigray should be the center of the world at this moment. Every eye should be looking towards Tigray because there's another genocide happening in the 21st century. And we can almost be sure that world leaders are going to come out tomorrow to say that never again, to say that they will not let this happen ever again. But this is happening right now and we're living through it. And we can't let it happen. And especially we can't let it happen in silence. The least we can do is raise awareness, uh, make sure everyone knows about it, make sure our local representatives know about it, respond to it, and that they report to the people that have elected them of what they're doing to try and to stop it. There are also options in helping refugees that have been displaced, most of which are in Sudan right now. Our collective was organizing a mutual aid support with refugees that are in Sudan. There are also other initiatives trying to support refugees in Sudan, as well as those in Tigray. Access is relatively better now. We cannot say it's unfettered and it's free, but it's relatively better. And there are also initiatives to try and distribute aid in Tigray, though it remains limited. There's also the option of helping Tagaru organizers. There are different Tigrayan organizers all over the world trying to organize protests, rallies, and appealing to the United Nations and the governments of the countries in which they reside to pressure Abiy to stop the genocide, to make sure that Eritrean, the Eritrean army leaves Tigray. 
that the Amhara militias and the Fano vigilante leave Tigray. It's also important that people that want to stand in solidarity with Tigrians hold their representatives accountable about the measures that their representatives and their governments are taking to pressure the Ethiopian government to stop this genocidal war and to pressure their countries and the United Nations to intervene and enact its responsibility to protect civilians. With how bad this is right now, we've heard of confirmed deaths of more than 50,000, but many, many places are still not accessible and reports have not been completed in even parts that are accessible. But we expect so many casualties and this is continuing. continue with the Free Social Radio 14.31 a.m. from Thessaloniki, Greece, with a contribution about the recently passed law for the educational system and the student movement. After that, we will hear a contribution about the hunger strike of Dimitris Kufodinas. On the 10th of February, the Ministry of Education and Religion, in association with the Ministry of Civil Security, passed a package of laws that affect the whole educational system from kindergarten to universities, basically promoting the privatization of the school system and degrading it so people can turn to private schools. Among the many changes, it includes the creation and placement of a police force especially for all university campuses. Before and after the passage of these laws, many demonstrations have taken place, and at the 22nd of February, students decided to squat the administrative building of University of Aristotle in Thessaloniki. The squad requests were that the laws that passed to be cancelled, that there will be no special police force inside the universities, that the universities will reopen with COVID safety measures and massive vaccinations, and was also in solidarity with the hunger strike of Dimitris Kuvodinas. The squad was evicted with increased violence the same day after the request of Director Papayoanu. 32 people were arrested and professors and students received unreasonable violence and chemicals that reached the public eye and a big part of society turned against the police which was ridiculed by their violent actions in front of cameras. A big demonstration was called that eventually took back the building and the squad continued. The next day, on the 23rd of February, a demonstration of 3,000 people united with a smaller demonstration of health workers and a motorbike protest by the people that work in the carrier industry, and together they arrived at the court where the 32 arrested were being charged and then released. The squad continued with 200 people at assemblies every day and many other projects inside, 
and a blog supporting demonstrations almost every day, not only for the changes in education, but for the hunger strike of Dimitris Kufodinas and police brutality. Also, nine other department buildings of the university were squatted in solidarity. On Monday 8th of March there was a failed attempt of a second eviction, but the squad was informed two hours before police forces arrived. And after an open call for solidarity, many people arrived before 9 pm, which is the limit for relative freedom of movement because of stupid Covid restrictions. After 9 pm, police forces surrounded the campus so people gathered at the theatrical department, which was occupied in solidarity a few days earlier. And in the first collective defiance of the restriction of movement after 9 pm, 150 people crossed the center of the city at around midnight. These spontaneous demonstrations were hit by police forces. Around 100 people managed to pass inside the university campus and reach the squatted administrative building and the rest of them hid inside buildings where they received help from neighbors in solidarity. Police forces were ridiculed once again and left, while the next day they announced lies that there was no plan for an eviction. On the 10th of March, the assembly decides that they will leave the squad by choice and support the other occupied department buildings. The morning of 11th of March, despite the announcement that the squad will end peacefully in a couple of hours, police forces managed to get inside the building, tie up 100 people that were inside, recorded everyone's face, took 33 people and finally arrested only 16 of them playing media games. A massive demonstration of nearly 10,000 people took place after a few hours protesting against police brutality. The struggle continues every day in the other squatted departments. The administrative building of University of Ioannina is occupied since the 1st of March and is still going strong despite the efforts of the government and police officials to convince the rector to sign an eviction order. On the 12th of March, the administrative building of the University of Thessaly in the town of Larissa and the glass building in the University of Athens are also occupied. Political prisoner Dimitris Kufontinas, member of the revolutionary organization of 17 November, based on the recently passed law, which restricts the permits of prisoners and blocks life sentence from serving their sentences in rural prisons, was abducted unannounced from the rural prisons of Kasavetia to be transferred to Tomokos prison. There, a hunger strike begins on the 8th of January 2021 with his main request being to be transferred to Korydalos prison, to which he should have been transferred according to the law imposed by the far-right New Democracy government. 
On January 16, 2021, Nikos Maziotis, member of the Revolutionary Struggle, and Yanis Dimitrakis from Domokos Prison went on a hunger strike in solidarity with Dimitris Kufondinas until his request to be transferred to Korydalos Prison was met. So far, many solidarity actions have been carried out and text in support of Dimitris Kufondinas. On January 18, a five-day hunger strike begins as a sign of solidarity with the political prisoner Dimitris Kufundinas, the political prisoner Georgiadis and Stathopoulos in the prisons of Larissa. After many days of hunger strike, Dimitris Kufundinas' health is in a serious condition. He suffers from multiple cellular and sensitivity disorders, dizziness, weight and muscle loss, and it is impossible for him to stand. He has lost part of his peripheral vision and is in danger of cardiac arrhythmia that might cause fatal results. The solidarity movement of Dimitris Kufundinas has shown great response and with multiple actions they put pressure to the government so that Dimitris Kufundinas' request be approved. Demonstrations and direct actions happen all around the world and people from a wide political spectrum support his struggle. Also, the student union squads include in their demandings that he will be transferred to Corridalos prison. Meanwhile, two of the requests the lawyers applied for reconsideration of the transfer request were denied after a communication war on the part of the government and secretary-general of crime policy Nicolaou. Also, the appeal to the State Council was not accepted on the grounds that it is an incompetent body to judge. After seven Panhellenic days of action, with marches, rallies that received extreme repression by the police, and 393 different actions of solidarity, texts, offensive actions and squatting, the fighter Dimitris Kufondinas announced on March 14th after 65 days, the end of the hunger strike with a text in which he thanks all the people who stood by him and with the realization that the struggle that the people are now waging against the authoritarian state is much more important from now on. You from the railings and we from the streets, together we will overthrow the state and the laws. The passion for freedom is stronger than all cells. Solidarity is our weapon. Next is the contribution from Radiofragmata, Athens, Greece, with notes on the current situation in so-called Greece. They will give a general view for Greek dystopia and some info for Kufodina's hunger strike, student struggles and migrant refugees.
Hey world, here are Radiofragmata in Athens with some notes on the current situation in so-called Greece. The anarchist movement in Greece is among the largest in the world, proportionate to the population. However, we are now experiencing unprecedented repression as a result of the pandemic and resulting political opportunism. We remain stagnated in lockdown, overwhelmed by the reign of the right and its defenders. Ecocide, social control, new crackdowns on universities and general repression of those excluded from or deemed enemies of the Greek state continue to expand in the shadow of COVID-19. We will highlight a few recent incidents of concern relating to the solidarity efforts essential for the global anarchist movement. We sometimes struggle to talk about this, not wishing to simply present a monthly bulletin on depression from Greece. We talk from a perspective that many people here share, best summarized by this comment that captures the theme of so many interactions here. Some days good, some days bad, just feel stuck and not even sure what I'm waiting for. During this enforced pause in our lives, those who hold power are rushing through policies and automation this quiz as pandemic response. This is part of a broader effort to gentrify Greek society. But don't doubt for a moment that there is a broader tension growing here. Whenever the state is forced to ease lockdown, people will awaken, broke and tired, and anger will be everywhere. The hunger strike of Dimitris Kufodinas. Long-term political prisoner Dimitris Kufodinas of the November 17th group had been on hunger strike. For 65 days, he was fighting for his right to be moved back to the basement of Korydalos prison in Athens, where he spent 16 years. The irony was that his demand was completely within his legal rights. The Greek government did not step back, so in order to leave, he ended the hunger strike on 14th of March. His health is still in critical condition. As for the wave of solidarity to his hunger strike, police have repeatedly attacked demonstrations in solidarity with him, using extreme force. Despite the curfew, solidarity actions have occurred nightly, including arson attacks on police facilities and paint actions targeting the offices of right-wing journalists. Behind bars, several political prisoners did engage in a hunger strike in solidarity. The courage demonstrated by those refusing to let his death go ignored expresses to other participants in social struggles that no matter what the authorities do, no one will be forgotten. For this, we want to humble recognize and note our respect for everyone who has taken action. Student struggles. In Greece, as in Chile, a law designating universities as zones of asylum that police were prohibited from entering came about as a result of military assaults on campuses. The new democracy regime has abolished the asylum law, allowing police onto campuses without concern for the violence that police have historically inflicted in universities. This decision has provoked massive students' demonstrations across the country. In addition, the new policy introduces additional privatization measures targeting educational institutions for the sake of paying back debts to the European Union and modernizing Greece according to the visions of the wealthy elite who wish to emulate Northern Europe or what they imagine America to be. 
Despite the violence and the risk of fines and imprisonment for assembly during the lockdown, students and their supporters continue to assemble and show force. Police and media claim these demonstrations are helping to spread the virus, but many participants attempt to socially distance and all wear masks. Such a claim seems hypocritical at best. When public transportation remains overcrowded, it is hard for many people to access hand sanitizer or, or personal protective equipment, and hospital budgets have been repeatedly slashed. Worse, police are starting to use American-style kettling tactics to trap demonstrators together in a small space, dramatically increasing the risk of spreading the virus. Immigrants Climate chaos is creating difficult conditions for refugees contained in camps across the country. A surreal, once-in-a-lifetime blizzard recently hammered Greece, another blow intensifying the horrific living conditions that so many refugees awaiting asylum in this country face. At the same time, xenophobic policies threaten migrants and even those supporting them. For example, a law created to discourage support for refugees that we mentioned in a report last summer led to the firing of a comrade for a charge of alleged riot in 2010. This is just one of many laws intended to deter solidarity efforts, terrorize refugees who are already desperate, and intensify the bureaucracy that the new regime is subjecting refugees and migrants to across the country. The refugee crisis is only expected to intensify in the post-pandemic economic crisis. You can always check our monthly full reports on Crime Think or Enough 14. Generally, take care and stand strong. With love and anger, from Greece. last contribution is from Cherna Lukna. They spoke with Peter Gelerdos after Pablo Hassel was imprisoned last month. The discussion was about the way the Spanish state is doing repression these days. Also about the nationalist element in the wave of riots sparked by Hassel's imprisonment. ever came home from earning $8.25 an hour feeling proud, minimum wage, just a fancy term for industrialized slavery. We're in a war, a war with the privileged. Those aren't streets you're sitting on, they're battlefields. And it is our duty to fight the comfortable and the overfed. 
So go forth, you sons of bitches. Izbojišče razredne vojne poroča Črna Luknja. In February, the Spanish state imprisoned a hip-hop artist Pablo Acel. This sparked a round of strong anti-police protests and riots in Barcelona and elsewhere. The news and images circulated around the world. In the aftermath of the events, Cherna Luknya spoke with an anarchist comrade about how common or uncommon is the case of Pablo Acel in the context of Spain and Catalonia. It's definitely not an isolated case. There's a long history of prosecutions like this. Um, another another hip-hop artist, uh, Valtonic, is also uh, facing charges uh, in the over the past um, 10 years and even going back farther. Uh, there have been cases of people arrested uh, and charged or imprisoned for burning photos of the king, uh, for example. Uh, in During the wave of anti-terrorism arrests against the anarchist movement here in the Spanish state, there was one, uh, one case, one set of, of several arrests that had to do, that was pretty much entirely based on comments uh, uh, people in a small anarchist group in Catalonia were making on uh, Facebook. There was another case from Madrid where um, uh, pretty much all of, uh, or nearly all of the evidence was, was also coming from Facebook comments. So, so yeah, Pablo Acel has been, has been um, imprisoned for nine months for, um, for in, insulting the crown, because yeah, you know, Spain has a king. Of course, um, insulting the crown and apology for terrorism, which basically has to do with uh, comments supporting uh, different resistance groups, uh, and and this is important. These are resistance groups that were fighting against the Spanish state when it was still a fascist dictatorship. So the Spanish democracy is is you know continuing um, repressive projects that have carried over from from the fascist dictatorship. The Spanish state seems to continuously update its arsenal of repressive tools and takes particular interest in maybe not so spectacular, but still quite harmful methods. Well, they've, they've instituted the, the Ye Mordaza, or gag laws, which gives the state a lot more powers, specifically to go after the very kinds of movements that were, that were popping up. Uh, so the feminist movement, the movement against evictions, with the feminist movement specifically being uh, like uh, around abortion. So there's specific laws criminalizing protests of religious activities and church activities, um, specific laws criminalizing trying to stop judicial agents from carrying out an eviction, uh, criminalizing um, videotaping the police, because of course, you know, police brutality sparked a lot of these things. Uh, pickets for labor struggles are also more criminalized. And so uh, it's it's a, a climate of a lot more repression, but repression that is easier for the state to hide. Just the way that they're they're trying to keep people from uh, from recording the police. Uh, a lot of it is coming in fines, which uh, yeah, and, you know these can be like fines of thousands or tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of euros. But that's not as dramatic as a prison sentence. It might not seem like it's as repressive. But with with you know such high unemployment and and low salaries and everything, like, you know like poor people uh, all all over are getting these huge fines of tens of thousands of euros for trying to keep from being kicked out of their houses and these evictions, and so that's just absolutely um, you know devastating for someone who's you know already losing their housing to then be faced with this fine. Uh, but then of course you know there's there's a whole lot of just straight up police violence. Um, 
um, migrant camps getting burned down uh, as you know as soon as they finished with the harvest. Uh, so they lose all their things, they lose all their documents. Migrants getting killed, uh, a lot of racism. Um, police opened fire on on a uh, um, um, a protest in southern southern Spain shortly before the Pablo Hassel uh, uh, imprisonment. Uh, they opened fire with live ammo with a shotgun and seriously wounded two people with like with real i mean obviously not bullets because it's a shotgun but you know um uh live rounds uh and that was after they had been you know caught just like two off-duty cops like completely like uh heavily beating two people in the street that was the reason for that protest so police had become sort of you know more aggressive more arrogant and just attacking people on the streets and then uh, as as well as you know these other other forms of repression like the fines and uh, and, and whatnot. For quite a while, whenever we speak about the popular mobilizations in Catalonia, there is always a question of the role of the nationalist elements in them. In his last contribution, our comrade offers some answer to this lingering question in relation to the protests sparked by imprisonment of Pablo Assel. Right. Uh, so Paulo Assel is is definitely um, supportive of of the Catalan independence movement. So it's like a, a left wing, more left wing uh, nationalism in that in that regards. Uh, the political parties in Catalonia that support um, that support independence have you know have have distanced themselves, uh, of course, from everything happening in the streets. Um, the more left wing ones. Uh, speak out against the imprisonment and speak in favor of changing the laws so that there can be more freedom of expression but they of course you know uh, completely condemn all the rioting and and whatnot um, as well as like some of the police violence like uh, one one person in the streets had her eye shot out by a police uh, rubber bullet um, whereas the right-wing Catalan independence parties you know of course don't even uh, criticize the, the police on any level um, but in general, I mean, the people in the streets have been um, young people. Uh, the um, the left-wing uh, Catalan independence movement, like the sort of youth organizations, they've been very active uh, in the protests, but no one has been controlling the protests. They've been quite uh, decentralized. And, and so you'll find all sorts of, of, of people uh, from, you know, young people with no political affiliation to anarchists to like... Um, you know, left-wing socialist uh, independence activists, and also, you know, there have been riots in in, in plenty of cities outside of of uh, Catalonia. People attacking the police in Madrid, in Granada, and and then just like many protests and um, and and whatnot, without necessarily riots in even like small towns uh, all over the place. <laughs> Ampak vse tule ni noben ga reda, nobene discipline. Se sploh ne veš, kdo komandira. Vsak ma besedo. Na svobodo se pripravljajo, to je tist. Muzika